All right, well, today I hope to uh, should be able to finish up uh, this foundation that we call the Bible. And uh, last week we went through the first five principles of hermeneutics. And today we'll go through six through ten, and we'll also touch on some of the other things, points I gave you when it comes to interpreting Scripture. That's why you see all these uh, these books here. Uh, you know, I have a Greek New Testament here. I have a Greek lexicon or dictionary. I have treasure of Scripture knowledge. I have concordance. I have a cross-reference, another cross-reference system. So these don't get intimidated by those. We'll get to those here in a little while. But before we get to today, uh, let's review some bit of a little bit of uh, last time I taught on this. Um, we went through uh, the principles one through five, um, and I gave you some examples. You remember anything from last time? Do you remember some example I gave you of identifying the literature you're reading? What did we go through? Okay. Well, those are the kind we can't, but you, those are some of the ones that you can go through. But what are some of the examples we gave to look at these different ones? Scriptures we actually looked at. Psalm 51.5, okay. And what is that? Uh, what kind of literature is that? Poetic, okay. And how, how do we know it was poetic? Okay, yep, that's one th- one thing we saw that was non-literal in that psalm. Okay, what are psalms overall as a as a genre? What are they? Songs, so they have they have non-literal stuff in them. They're poetic, and so when you go to the psalms, you have to realize you're dealing with uh, as an overall genre type of literature. You're dealing with poetic literature as an overall genre. Now there can be literal things in there, of course, and there are. Lots of literal things in it. But there also can be figurative things. And so we looked at Psalm 51.5. And what what did we find out about Psalm 51.5? Is it saying that you're born a sinner? What 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 was it saying then? Josh? Go ahead, brother. Right, right. I think that's a safe conclusion to come to. Uh, I don't think it's. We looked at different translations of the Bible. What was the one translation we looked at of the Bible that uh, said that you're born a sinner, I've been a sinner from birth? Which one was that? NIV. That's right. Right. So we looked at that. We also looked at the Psalm 58:3, and uh, I didn't really go th- into too much depth on that because I wanted you to figure it out for yourself. Did anyone look into that and figure it out? Nobody? Mm. I didn't know you asked for it, but I know. I've seen your videos. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So why don't you tell us, Sean, what is Psalm 53 talking about? Um, if I remember right, he's contrasting the, the wicked and the righteous. Mm-hmm. And it's actually about the wicked. And it's obviously not physical or literal because babies don't lie. It might be illiter- It might be alluding to the fact that usually the first sin a child will do is lie. Mm-hmm. 
like knowingly. Like right. That way. Right. And I think it talks about teeth being broken out, if I remember right. Right. Fang has been broken out of the young lions. Yeah, yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. So Psalm 53, and we can also contrast it with Psalm 51.5. Now, Psalm 51.5, the NIV translators are right. You're sinful from what? Conception, right? But if Psalm 53 is literal too, you're sinful from what? After you come out of the womb. You go estranged from the womb. You go astray as soon as you're born, speaking lies. And as Sean pointed out, babies don't even talk when they're born, let alone tell lies. Now, that may be alluding to the first uh, lie they told, but David is obviously engaging in hyperbole here because he's saying these people are wicked. And he's exaggerating to prove how wicked they are. And he's contrasting them with the righteous. So Psalm 53 would not even be applicable to righteous people. So if people want to apply that to themselves universally, what are they saying about themselves? That they're unrighteous. They're aligning themselves with the wrong group of people. Okay, so we looked at that. We looked at, looked at also historical narrative. Uh, what were some uh, things? We, what were some examples we looked at for that? Does anyone remember? The gospel is a historical narrative. Yeah, yeah. Let's, what are some of the specific examples we gave though? Is historical narrative uh, always teaching a "thus saith the Lord"? This is the way you're supposed to do, and this is the example you're supposed to follow. No, okay. What were some examples that we've looked at that you weren't supposed to follow, or we talked about? David and Bathsheba, that's right. That's right, we shouldn't follow David in his footsteps. Even though he was a man after God's own heart, should we follow in his footsteps when it comes to that? Was he a man after God's own heart while he was in the midst of doing that? Yeah. Okay. So it's also important when we deal with historical narrative to realize chronology, when these things took place, when God said these things about people. God said that about David before he was even anointed king. And here we are much later on. Saul's dead and gone. Much later on. And now David's king and he commits a sin. So it's impossible to be a man for God's own heart and sin these things at the same time. Uh, but people will use that to justify their own sin. By saying that about David. We also look at the wisdom literature. Now what do we say about, we looked at Proverbs, looked at several examples in Proverbs. Remember any examples we looked at? What was the saying I gave you? That Proverbs are not promises. They're Proverbs. Yes. Now, there can be promises found in Proverbs, but one example we looked at was, you know, train a child and where they should go, and when they're old, they won't depart from it. And uh, Brother John sent me an email this morning about a guy who committed suicide, and on one of those videos where it's talking about this guy who used to be a street preacher who committed suicide, someone quoted that verse. See how see how much problem you can run into with that? People think, well, hey, you, you train them where they go, when they're old, they won't depart from it. It's a promise, you know. It's not a promise. There's no guarantee. There's no, your, your children have free will. My children have free will. I hope to God they don't depart from the faith. I hope they get in the faith first. And secondly, I hope they don't depart from the faith. But it's not a promise from God. There isn't some formula where your, your children's free will is taken away and all of a sudden you're lording over that and they have no free will left. You remember anything else we looked at from uh, Proverbs? You'd be looking at some examples that were promises. Yeah? Proverbs 3, 5 through 6, yes. 
I believe so. Yes. Joshua? Yes, Proverbs 28.1. Yeah, now that's not a promise either. That's a characteristic, a general characteristic of the righteous. But does that mean that if you flee from persecution, the Bible says to do sometimes, that you're not righteous now? No, it doesn't mean that. All right, so we looked at several things for wisdom literature as well. Okay, historical context, uh, knowing when it was written, why it was written, by whom and to whom, that's important. There's several examples of that. Literary context, interpreting by the verse, the passage of the book, other books by the same writer, the Testament, and then the Bible. All right, so we'll, we'll, we'll begin the teaching for today. We'll stop the review. Okay, uh, let's go to number six. Number six is Old Testament verses quoted. This is the sixth principle of hermeneutics. Go back to the Old Testament to see what they're saying in context. Okay, let's go to, Proverbs, let's go to Romans 9. I think this is probably one of the best examples you can you can deal with in the New Testament of people taking verses from the Bible and twisting them as they're quoted from the Old Testament, twisting them to get them to say what they want them to say instead of what they actually said in context. And let's just uh, ask the Lord to bless this time. Father, I just give you this time. I ask you, Lord, to help us to be hearers. Help me, Lord, to uh, to speak with simple words, Lord, words that even children could understand. Uh, give me clarity of thought. And, Father, help me to make these things understandable. And I pray that those who are listening would understand and take heed to these things and be Bereans throughout the rest of their lives, not being deceived by false doctrines or being tossed to and fro with every wind of doctrine, but holding fast to your word, understanding it, reading it, studying it, and being zealous uh, to feed upon your word. That's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Okay, so Romans chapter 9. And uh, I'm not going to read the whole chapter, but we're going to touch on some of these verses that uh, are quotes from the Old Testament, and we're going to see what it says. Now, Romans chapter 9 as a whole, uh, as you go about your Christian life, uh, if you haven't run into this interpretation of it yet, you eventually will. If you're continuing in the faith, you'll see that people will use Romans 9 to try to prove this idea that God picks and chooses who's going to be saved and who isn't. You know, he's just picking. He's no free, you have no free will. Uh, there's no choice of yours involved. It's just God choosing. Okay. And we've talked about this a lot in the fellowship, but Romans 9 is one of the main chapters of the Bible that'll be used to prove this. And I want to show you how they're taking these Old Testament quotes and not using them properly. So go to Romans 9:12. And we see it says here, this is talking about the children of Isaac. And it was said to, to his uh, wife, Rebecca, it was said to her, the older shall serve the younger. That's in verse 12 of Romans 9. Now, if you have, does anyone here have a reference Bible? Are they using a reference Bible? Okay, now what reference do you see for that verse there, Joshua? All right, let's go back there. And I, I think through this, uh, this exercise we're going through Romans 9, you're going to see how uh, how nice it is to have a reference Bible. So you know where these verses are right just by looking in your Bible. And of course, if you don't have a reference Bible, I would uh, encourage you to make your Bible a reference Bible. Uh, write the verses there. You, have, you know, write in a little, small writing and write in there, this is Genesis 25, 23. 
So Genesis 25, um, let's start in uh, verse 21. It says, Now Isaac pleaded with the Lord for his wife, because she was barren. And the Lord granted his plea, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. But the children struggled together within her. And she said, If all is well, why am I like this? So she went to inquire of the Lord. And the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your wombs. Two peoples shall be separated from your body. One people shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. Now, this this uh, thing that the Lord said to her, and it's, we only get a partial quote in Romans 9.12. The partial quote is the last part, the older shall serve the younger. Okay, And we know that Jacob was a younger one. He came out second. Esau came out first. I mean, maybe a few minutes apart from each other, but they were still an older and a younger one. And, um, but we see here, is God, when he's telling this to Rebecca, is he talking about, uh, Jacob and Esau's individuals? Or are you talking about the nations that will come from them? The nation that shall come from them. Okay? But people, uh, who interpret Romans 9 improperly will say, well, this is talking about individuals here. The other problem they had with that, besides not interpreting, uh, Genesis 25 properly, is that history says the exact opposite. Esau, as an individual, never served Jacob as an individual. And I'm not going to go through the whole history of that. You can just read Genesis for yourself to figure that out. But uh, Esau never served Jacob. In fact, it was the exact opposite. After Jacob stole his birthright, he went away and hid for a while. And finally, he came back, and he bowed down and said, I'll serve you, Esau. That's kind of like a way of apologizing to him. And so, not only does their interpretation of that not make sense with history, but not make sense with what it's saying there in Genesis 25, 23. Now, we do see later on that the uh, older the nation that came from the older, which is also called Edom, okay, that's a nation that came from Esau, they served Israel, which is a nation that came from Jacob. Okay, let's go to the next verse, Genesis, I mean, Romans 9, 13. <clears throat> now, just before we read Romans 9.13, you need to understand that Romans 9.12, which is quoted from Genesis 25.23, uh, that was spoken to Rebecca about 2000 B.C. Okay? 2000 B.C. Okay, Romans 9.13. As it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. Okay, so here we have uh, God saying about Jacob that he loved him, and Esau I have hated. Now, people will take this verse... And they'll try to prove this idea that God unconditionally loves some people and unconditionally hates other people. And then they'll take that and say, well, God's sending some people to heaven unconditionally and some people to hell unconditionally. Okay? That's what they still say this verse is saying. Uh, does anyone else have a reference Bible besides Joshua? Uh, John, okay. Malachi chapter 1. Let's go there. That's where it's quoting from. Uh, now here's, this is what, this is the reason why I gave you the date a minute ago of 2000 BC. Malachi 1 is written 400 BC. 1600 years later, uh, Jacob and Esau are both long dead when this was, uh, spoken by Malachi the prophet, and thus saith the Lord. Okay, so Malachi chapter 1, starting in verse 1. The burden by the word of the Lord to, is, to Israel by Malachi. I have loved you. So who's this written to? Who's this a burden of the Lord to? To? Israel. Is Israel just an individual here? Because Jacob's dead, right? It's the nation, right? Who he's speaking to uh, from the Lord. I have loved you, says the Lord. Yet you say, in what way have you loved us? 
Was not Esau Jacob's brother, says the Lord? Yet Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated, and laid waste his mountains and his heritage from the jackals of the wilderness. Even though Edom has said, we have been impoverished, but we will return and build the desolate places. Thus says the Lord of hosts, they may build, but I will throw down. They have called, they shall be called the territory of wickedness, and the people against whom the Lord will have indignation forever. Your eyes shall see, and you shall say, the Lord is magnified beyond the border of Israel. So when you see here in these five verses of Malachi 1, these first five verses, is God referring to Edom or Esau? Is he referring to Jacob the individual or Israel the nation? And and in what sense is he saying he hated them? Is is there any mention of heaven or hell in these five verses? Is there any mention of individual salvation in these five verses? What is there mention of? What is God doing to Edom to prove his quote-unquote hatred towards him? He's destroying their buildings. He's tearing them down. And, And what has he done for Jacob to show that he loves him? Building up nation, so so he's blessing one nation and he's cursing another nation. But does it say that everybody in Israel is is going to go to the kingdom of heaven in here, or that everyone in Edom is going to hell? That's not even the point of the passage. The point is to to say to to Israel, I have blessed you so much, and look, I've torn torn down Edom because I chose you as a nation over Edom as a nation, and he was going to uphold them as a nation. And so the point, uh, that, going back to Romans 9 now, the point Paul is making has nothing to do with salvation. Nothing to do. And if you go back to the beginning of Romans 9, let's just read Romans 9, 1. So I tell you the truth in Christ, I am not lying, my conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and continuing grief in my heart. For I could, here's the reason why. For I could wish that I myself were cursed from Christ for my brethren. Now he's about to tell you who his brethren are. My countrymen according to the flesh, who are Israelites. The whole point of Romans 9 is to talk about the Israelites as a nation. He has continual grief and great sorrow in his heart because as a whole, not all of them because he's he's an Israelite himself, as a whole, they're rejecting Jesus Christ. What's your question, Mel? Okay. Yes. Okay. Thank you, Malachi. Yeah. So he's he's writing to about the Israelites, to the Israelites about this situation, and what he's proving to them. What we see here in the beginning of Romans nine, starting in verse six through th- verse thirteen, he's proving to them that they were chosen as a nation. Um, we see this in uh, Jacob. He chose Jacob over Esau. He were they were chosen as a nation, and listen to all the things they have as a blessing as a nation in verse four, Romans nine. To whom pertain the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of a law, the service of God, the promises, of whom are the fathers, and from whom, according to the flesh, Christ came, who is over all the eternally blessed God. Amen. They had lots of benefits by being the Israelites. Not only were they chosen by God, they were blessed with all these things I just, I just uh, talked about in verse 4. Uh, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the service of God, the promises, the fathers are who they came from, and Christ came from them. So many uh, temporal blessings that should have turned into eternal blessings for them if they would have just received it and obeyed it. And so 
When we see Jacob I have loved and Esau I have hated, we have to understand what God is saying there. Okay, go down to verse 15. In fact, we'll just read verse 14. What shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? Certainly not. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whomever I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whomever I will have compassion. Well, that sounds like a perfect proof text for these people who want to say, well, God chooses some people and has mercy on them and compassion on them, but some people he doesn't have mercy and compassion on. But as we've seen the whole time, he's been talking about this train of thought he's been going on. He's been talking about Israel as a nation. I mean, even if we were to go back up to verse 7, uh, we see he chose Abraham, and then he chose Isaac. Now, God could have chosen Ishmael, right? Did Abraham have no child named Ishmael? He could have chosen him, but he didn't choose Ishmael. He chose Isaac, okay? Uh, and even later on, I believe, um, uh, Abraham had another wife, and he had other children. He could have chosen one of them, but he chose Isaac. And Isaac had no choice in the matter that God was going to choose him. Uh, before Jacob and Esau were even born, God chose Jacob, the younger, as a nation. He chose that nation before Esau was even born, before Jacob was even born. So it had nothing to do with them doing good or evil or not. It's just God's choice. But it has nothing to do with salvation. Choosing them as a nation, that he's going to give all these things to this nation. The covenant, the deliverance from the Egyptians, the law of God, Moses, the Messiah would come through them. All those things were given to that one nation, that nation alone. They had no choice in the matter. God was going to do that. Yes, he gave them the land. That was their, it, was a, it was a conditional inheritance to them. Now, of course, they haven't fulfilled the, the, their part of the bargain, so their conditions have not been met, so their land has been taken from them now, and it's been given to the one who did fulfill all the requirements, Jesus, the one who is the seed, not descendants, but the seed of Abraham, which Genesis refers to. Okay, so we see uh, Romans 9.15. Daniel, you said you have a reference Bible as well? Where, where, where is that quoting from? That's right, let's go to Exodus 33. Now, if you want to get the full context here, I'm going to admonish you to go back and read Exodus 32. I'm not going to read it, but I'm going to summarize what is going on here. Okay? Uh, in Exodus 32, we see that Moses is on the mount. He's been away for quite some time. The Israelites say, well, we don't know what's become of Moses, so uh, they went to Aaron, they pressured him, and he said, give us all your gold earrings. Give us all your gold. And he fashioned for them a golden calf. And while Moses was still on the mount with God, God became pretty angry. He said, you know what? I'm going to wipe them out, and I'm going to make a nation of you. That's what, that's what God said to Moses on the mount. And Moses was like, whoa, you know, don't, don't do that. You know, have mercy on them. And so Moses comes down from the mount, and uh, he gets pretty upset. He throws the Ten Commandments down and breaks them. Okay? And... Um, after he does it, he says, well, whoever's on my side, come over here. And all the, the, the sons of Levi came on his side. And what did they do? They killed 3,000 men. So Moses began to see what God saw. I mean, maybe he was up in the mount. He didn't really understand how bad it was. That's why he was more inclined to be compassionate towards Israelites when God was more inclined to be angry towards, angry towards them because he saw it all. When he got down there, he was pretty angry. And so 3,000 men were killed that day as an act of punishment from God and from Moses for their disobedience. And and then we see um, the prayer of Moses that God would forgive them, uh, starting in Exodus 30, uh, 33, and then that God tells him to leave Mount Sinai. Okay? And that's where we pick up here uh, in Exodus chapter 33. And start, let's start in verse 12. 
says, <clears throat> Then Moses said to the Lord, See, you say to me, bring up this people, talking about leaving Mount Sinai, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name, and you have also found grace in my sight. Talking about Moses. That's what God said about Moses. Now therefore I pray, if I have found grace in your sight, show me now your way that I may know you, <clears throat> that I may find grace in your sight, and consider this nation is your people. And he said, my presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. Then Moses said to God, if your presence does not go with us, do not bring us up from here. For how then will it be known that your people and I have found grace in your sight, except you go with us? So we shall be separate, your people and I, from all the people who are on the, upon the face of the earth. So the Lord said to Moses, uh, I, I will also do this thing that you have spoken, for you have found grace in my sight, I know you by name. And he said, Please show me your glory. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you, and I will proclaim the name of the Lord before you. I will be gracious to, this is the part where, that's from Romans 9, okay, we're about to read it here. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will have compassion to whom I will have compassion. So let's just stop right there. Okay, so here we have the situation. The Israelites being wicked, God being angry, Moses pleading for mercy for them, Moses going down, Moses getting angry, 3,000 being killed. Then God saying, okay, it's time to leave Mount Sinai. And Moses like, well, wait a minute. I know you, I know I found grace in your sight. I know I found mercy in your sight. But what about these people? Because last thing he heard from God is God was pretty angry about them. He wanted to wipe them out and start a complete whole new nation through Moses. And that's when God says, I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. I will have compassion to whom I will have compassion. Now God's compassion and mercy and grace towards Israel as a nation, was it because of something good they did? Was it because they were holy and righteous? Did he allow them to continue as a nation, as a people, and not destroy them because they were holy people? No, it's the exact opposite. He's being gracious and compassionate. As we see, I kind of highlighted the words as I was reading it, but you see at the end of verse 13, and consider this nation is your people. Uh, verse 15, then he said to them, if your prayers does not go with us, do not bring us up from here. Uh, for how then will it be known that your people and I have found grace in your sight? except you go um, with us. So we shall be separate, your people and I, from all the people who are upon the face of the earth. And then the Lord said, I will also do this thing that you have spoken. So now the Lord said, okay, I'll do that. So even here in Romans 9.15, where he's saying this, he's not talking about the Israelites' individual salvation, because even the nation of Israel, if you go back and read in Exodus 32, there were some people who sided with Moses. There were some people who did not bow down and worship the golden calf. And they took up swords and they slayed 3,000 Israelites on that day. Okay? And Moses, obviously, he's a part of Israel, and, got, and he wasn't one who took, uh, partook in that too. But uh, so what we have here in Romans 9 is basically a history lesson, for lack of better words, or a history lesson of how God's been so gracious and so kind to Israel throughout the years, loving and compassionate towards them, and how wicked they've been. And he's showing to them, listen, I didn't choose you because you were holy or righteous. I didn't choose you because you were good and weren't evil. My grace and compassion extended towards you for the exact opposite, because I was gracious and compassionate. Had nothing to do with you. I found nothing within you to give you grace and compassion. I mean, think about it. All the things God had done up to that point in Exodus 32, and they they seen the pillar of the cloud, the smoke, the fire. they seen the, the part of the Red Sea. they seen the ten plagues. All the things they did, and they say, you know what? 
Moses has been gone for 40 days now. I don't know what he's doing, but uh, let's just make a golden calf and worship it instead. Now, there, there's nothing within them that deserves God's grace and mercy. There's nothing within them that deserves them to be, continue on to be God's nation. That God shouldn't just wipe them off the face of the planet and start over with Moses. Besides that God is gracious and compassionate towards them. Okay? So you see these things as we go through. And there's a couple other ones we could go through, but I, I want to really move on to get these other principles here. But there's all the ones you can go through here too, like this uh, verse 17 talks about Pharaoh, but I would encourage you to go back and read the account of Pharaoh in Exodus 7 through 12 and see for yourself what exactly happened there. Okay? Um, okay, so let's move on to the next principle of interpretation. Um, if the literal sense makes perfect sense, Take no other sense lest you make nonsense. Okay, let's go to Genesis chapter 1. Now, there are some uh, professing Christians around these days uh, who will say that Genesis 1 is not literal, that uh, we need to take the figurative approach to the six days of creation. Okay? So let's just... Uh, I'm just going to read the, the main verses that I want to focus on here. I'm sure you've all read this account before. If you haven't, I would encourage you to read it several, several times so you understand what I'm saying here. But um, I'm going to read what God said at the end of every single day. Okay? Genesis 1.5 God called the light day, and darkness he called night. So the evening and the morning were the first day. Genesis 1.8 And God called the firmament heaven. So the evening and the morning were the second day. Okay. Uh, Genesis 1.13. So the evening and the morning were the third day. Genesis 1.19. So the evening and the morning were the fourth day. Uh, Genesis 1.23. So the evening and the morning were the fifth day. And then Genesis 1.31. Then God saw that everything he had made, and indeed it was very good, so the evening and morning were the sixth day. Now, what are the similarities you see in these six verses, Brother Tracy? I say evening and morning. They all say evening and morning. Any other similarities you see? It was good. It was good. Okay. Yeah. The numeric, numeric plane order. But there's a numeral, right? There's a numeral for each one. I mean, so uh, now the, the Hebrew word used here for the word day is the Hebrew word yom. Y-O-M, if you transliterate into the English language, yom. And that word can mean something other than a literal 24-hour period. Okay, But it never means anything but a literal 24-hour period when there is a, a modifier to it. Okay, Like evening and morning. And like a numeral like first or second or third or fourth or fifth or sixth. Okay? So when these people come to this this text, and they're just reading it through, you, if you talk to uh, any Hebrew scholar, even those who are secular or who are liberal scholars, they would say a normal reading of Genesis 1 in the Hebrew, you can come up with no other idea except that he's talking about six literal 24-hour periods. Okay, But people come to this idea and try to make it less than literal because they have some other idea in their head that they bring to the text, like evolution. People try to combine evolution and the Bible if they can go together, when they can't go together. Um, 
you know, they'll say that uh, because yom can mean something other than a 24-hour period, if it doesn't have a modifier on it or an adjective on it, uh, they think, well, it can mean that here. But it has first, second, third, fourth, fifth. It has morning and evening after before each one. And so we know that it is a literal 24-hour period. But they'll say, well, that means literal, uh, it means, uh, it's not literal, it means millions of years. The, the first period, the first millions of years, the second millions of years, the third millions of years, the fourth millions of years. That's what they'll say it means. But the problem with that, and this will touch on another principle that we're going to talk about, is found in Exodus chapter 20. And we see in Exodus chapter 20, this is not, um, it's, it's, it's found in Exodus, which is a historical narrative, but it's a commandment given from God. Okay? Whereas Genesis 1 is a historical narrative, it's saying what happened. Okay? Exodus 20 is saying what God said. So it's a commandment, okay? Exodus chapter 20, starting in verse 8. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you will work and do all your work. But the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord, your God. In it you shall do no work, nor you, nor your son, nor your daughter, nor your male servant, nor your female servant, nor your cattle, nor your stranger who is within your gates. For in, And here's the reason why. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is uh, is in them, and rested the seventh day, therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. So if we take the uh, the non-literal uh, interpretation of Genesis 1, what are we going to do with Exodus 20, 8 through 12 now? Right, you have to be consistent and apply the same person. Now we have to work for six million years before we can have a break. Does that make any sense? Is that what God's trying to communicate here? No, it's kind of funny, isn't it? Is that what God's trying to communicate there? That's not what he's trying to communicate. But see, people uh, who usually people who come to these conclusions about Genesis 1, they, they don't read their Bibles very much. They, maybe they haven't read Exodus 20. And this is why it's important, another principle to touch on here, to read through the whole Bible several times, to keep reading it through and study it. If all you do is study Genesis 1, you're not familiar with this principle that I brought up that when you have a modifier upon Yom, it only means a literal 24-hour day. And you think, well, Yom, you do a word study on Yom. Well, Yom can mean more than a literal 24-hour day. It can mean just a period of time. And you say, well, you, didn't read, you haven't read Exodus 20 yet. So you say, well, I'm concluding like the evolutionist does that this means millions of years every time. But if you apply the principle of interpreting Scripture with Scripture, you're going to come to the right conclusion and understand that Genesis 1 is talking about literal 24-hour periods of time. Okay? Does everyone understand that? Okay. Let's go to the eighth principle. That uh, there are found in scriptures. Not everything is literal. Okay? We just talked about the literal sense makes perfect sense, take no other sense, unless you make nonsense. But there's also parables in scripture. There's hyperbole in scripture. There's metaphor in scripture. So let's look at some examples of those. Let's turn to uh, Matthew 18. Look at a parable here. Now, the word parable is, com- is two words combined, para and, bo- and bolo. Para means alongside, bo- uh, bolo or balo means to cast. So a parable is to cast alongside. Okay, a-, a synonym with parabola would be parallel. Okay, it's a parallel thing to help you, uh, it's cast alongside a real story to teach you a lesson. Okay. Does anyone remember, this is going, this is really digging into your resources here, but does anyone remember the reasons why parables were given? There were three reasons. Uh, Tracy? So that people would not understand. So some, who, which people? The uh, Pharisees. 
Okay? But what, what's the characteristic of these group of people who won't understand? They were hypocrites. Okay? Yeah, these are people who really didn't want the truth. Right. If they really didn't want the truth, they wouldn't understand it. What was another reason uh, why Jesus gave parables? Right, and that goes along with what Tracy is saying, that the people who really didn't want the truth, because, I mean, they're, they're rejecting these miracles done before them and calling out Beelzebub, they obviously don't want the truth. It's done right before their eyes. So he began to speak in parables. What's another reason why? Jenna? Fulfill prophecy. There's one other reason. So that some would see. That's right. For those who really wanted the truth, they would seek understanding from it. Okay? And sometimes in the parables, Jesus actually gives the interpretation of it. And we'll look at that uh, one of those here in a second. But let's look at this one in Matthew 18 first. Uh, it's from verse uh, 21 all the way to verse 35. So let's read that. Then Peter came to him and said, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times? So here's the context. Peter's coming to Jesus. Is Peter forgiven of his sins at this point in time? Or is he still a sinner in God's eyes? He's forgiven of his sins, right? Isn't he a disciple of Jesus Christ? You know, he has the only forgiveness he can speak of, which is offering the sacrifice in the temple. Christ hasn't died yet, but in God's eyes, just like Abraham was righteous, Peter is righteous. So is a righteous person coming to Jesus and asking about forgiveness? Okay, well, let's read what Jesus had to say about this. Jesus said to him, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to 70 times seven. Let's stop right there. Is that literal right there? So at 491, I don't forgive you anymore? Yeah. So that's like the opposite of hyperbole. He's under-exaggerating. But he's also exaggerating at the same time, isn't he? Because Peter said seven. He said, no, 70 times seven. Hopefully you won't have to forgive your brother that many times. But if you do, you should go beyond that. That's the point Jesus is making here. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a certain king. He wanted to settle accounts with his servants. And when he had begun to settle accounts, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. But as he was not able to pay, his master commanded that he be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and the payment be made. The servant therefore fell down before him saying, Master, have patience with me and I will pay you all. Then the master of that servant was moved with compassion and released him and forgave him the debt. But that servant went out and found one of his fellow servants and owed him a hundred, who owed him a hundred denarii. And he laid hands on him and took him by the throat, saying, Pay me what you owe me. So his fellow servant fell down at his feet and begged him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will pay you all. And he would not have patience, but went and threw him into prison till he should pay the debt. So when his fellow servants saw that he had what had been done, they were very grieved and came and told their master all that had been done. Then his master, after he had called him, said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all the debts because you begged me. Do you not also have had compassion on your fellow servant, just as I had pity on you? And his master was angry and delivered him to the torturers until he should pay all that was due to him. So my heavenly father also will do to you if each of you from his heart does not forgive his brother his trespasses. So Jesus is talking to Peter and the disciples here, people who already have forgiveness. And who is the heavenly father in this parable? He's the, he's the master, that's right, he's the master. Um, and so, this is what the master will do to people who are already forgiven, because that guy was forgiven in the parable, right? And someone who's coming to him is forgiven, Peter, and he doesn't forgive his brother after he's been forgiven, then what happens to him? 
his forgiveness is taken away, right? His full payment came back. So that's the main thing God, God is, Jesus is trying to say here to his disciples. Now, uh, when it comes to parables, you have to be very careful uh, not to read too much into it. Let's think of some things that you can read into. You can read into a couple things. One, you can read into it that uh, if God doesn't forgive you of your sins in verse 25, that he'll send you, your wife, and your children all to hell for your debt. Is that what the Bible teaches? No. Oh, so, so people reading the parables. You might be able to read into this that... Um, in verse uh, 20, 31, it says, uh, So when his fellow servants saw what had been done, they were very grieved and came and told the master what had been done. Does God need you to tattletale on someone so he can know about their sins? He knows about their sins before you even told him. He doesn't need you to tell him those things. He's not ignorant of these facts. Uh, you might be able to read into this. Is there, is there any atonement mentioned in this, this scenario? But isn't an atonement required for your sins to be forgiven? So there are lots of things you can read into a parable. You have to stick with the main thing in the parable. Uh, now, there are certain parables where more details are given. But in this parable, I think what we can safely conclude is this. Is that when you... Well, here's another detail you can read into, I believe, in verse 24, who owed him 10,000 talents. Now, if you remember back in that teaching, I explained to you that's 15,000 years worth of wages. It's an unpayable debt. So I think we can, we can safely read into that, that our debt is unpayable. We can never pay it back to God. Okay? And we can also read into this hundred denarii, which is a hundred days worth of labor, that our brothers have sinned very little against us compared to how much we've sinned against God. And so we need to take that into perspective when we're, we're our brother does something wrong, our sister does something wrong against us, we need to take that into perspective. Okay? So those are some details we can read into it. I believe, safely, because it, 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 it is, it's, goes along with the rest of Scripture. But those other details that I uh, talked about a second ago, those things don't comport with the rest of Scripture. They don't go along with the rest of Scripture. So we cannot read into it. So we have to stay with the main thing, which is, if you've been forgiven your sins, but you don't forgive your brother, God will take back your forgiveness. And what doctrine does that promote? You can lose your salvation. Yes, you can lose your salvation. Okay, let's go to Matthew... Uh, Parable of the Wheat and Tares, Matthew 13. <clears throat> now this is one of the parables where Jesus gives all the details. He leaves nothing open for interpretation here. He gives the interpretation. Matthew 13, starting in verse 24. Parable of the Wheat and Tares. Another parable he put forth to them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. While men slept, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat, and went his way. When the grain has sprouted and produced a crop, then the tares also appeared. So the servants of the owner came and said to him, Sir, do you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have tares? He said to them, An enemy has done this. The servant said to him, Do you want us then to go and gather them up? But he said, No, lest while you gather up the tares, you also uproot the wheat with them. Let them both grow together until the harvest. In the time of the harvest, <clears throat> I will say to the reapers, First gather together the tares and bind them in bundles to burn them, but gather the wheat into my barn. So that's the, uh, that's the parable there. And people have read a lot of, uh, bad things into this. Like they've read into it that, uh, you know, the, the reason why you won't gather them up and burn them or separate tares from the from wheat is because the tares look like the wheat and that's carnal Christians and therefore you don't want to reap up carnal Christians because they'll go to the kingdom too. But what happens to the tares in the end? Thrown into the fire, and, and could these men could they tell the difference between the wheat and the tares? Otherwise, they wouldn't have brought it up. 
they wouldn't know there's tears there in the first place if they, if they didn't see the difference between them. So it had nothing to do with that. And, and it doesn't say in the, in the interpretation of it, <clears throat> but it seems to me that uh, God is giving patience to the tares that they might become wheat. Yes. But let's go to verse 36, and we see the explanation here. And then Jesus sent the multitudes away and went to the house, and his disciples came to him. This is the third part Kevin was talking about here. They're seeking after further knowledge, further understanding. Explain to us the parable of the tares of the field. He answered said to them, He who sows the good seed is the son of man. Who's that? Jesus, that's right. Now, is Jesus doing all the sowing, or are you doing some of the sowing too? He's sowing it through you, right? For me to live as Christ and the guy's gain. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. Okay. Um, the field is the world. So the field is not the church, right? The field is the world, the whole world. The good seeds are the sons of the kingdom, but the tares are the sons of the wicked one. The enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are the angels. Therefore, as the tares are gathered and burned in the fire, so will be at the end of the age. Son of man will send out his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all things that offend and those who practice lawlessness, and will cast them to the furnace of fire. They'll be wailing and gnashing of teeth, and the righteous will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of the Father. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And so we see it explained. He explains all the details, who the sower is, what the seed is, um, who the enemy is, what the tares are, what the wheat are. And can someone go from being a tear to a wheat? Yes. I mean, we were all tares, right, at one point in time, so we became wheat. And uh, speaking of literal language here, um, are sons of the devil, are they literally birthed forth from his seed and he had a wife and everything? And so that's not literal either. Okay, so that, those are two examples of parables and how to, to use those properly. Let's go to Matthew twenty three twenty four. Look at some hyperbole here. Yeah, go ahead. Well, I mean, it's it's possible it could be a parable, but even if let's just step into those shoes for a second. Let's say it is a parable, okay? Even if if it is a parable, is a parable going to present something to you that's the exact opposite of the truth? No, and so they have a problem with that. See, this is presenting a scenario where there's a man in Hades, and he's alive, he's a well, he can he's well, he can talk, and he's in torment, he's in pain. He's asking for some kind of relief from that pain, and God gives him none of it. He asks that someone be sent back from the grave to speak to his brothers, and that will not be sent. The other one is in Abraham's bosom, okay? And we know that uh, is being at his bosom, we go back to John, and when he had the, the, great, the supper, the last supper, he was laying his head on Jesus' bosom. So it's, it's, it's like he's dining with Abraham, and wherever Abraham is, that's where he is, okay? So... We see these principles, we see these, these things, these details of the story. God is not going to put details in the story that contradict what the truth is in the Bible. And, and not only that, as we look at other passages that are literal, we see this doctrine talked about over and over again. And so it's not like all we have is Luke 16. And so, remember, Mr. Literal is driving the van. And Mr. Parable is in there somewhere, and he's agreeing with Mr. Literal. And so, 
I can't think of one example of a parable giving details of a story uh, and they're contradicting the truth of Mr. Literal. Yes? And also parables usually, even though they're alongside, they aren't of the same level. Like, you know, Jesus talking about wheat and tares being torn, it doesn't sound so bad. Then he explains you, like, oh, okay, that's what's really going to happen. It's going to be worse. worse. Yes. Yes, very good point. Yes, the, the literal is usually worse than the symbolic. It's usually the way it works. Yes. Yeah. So that, I mean, even if we were to give that to them, it doesn't say in Luke 16 whether it is a parable or not. It doesn't say that. And I think you make a good point that Abraham is in the story. And so, in, in my opinion, that's a literal story. It's talking about two men who literally, one went to the Abraham's bosom, one went to Hades. Uh, but even if we give them that, they still have to deal with the facts that are in it, the details that are in it. And they're trying to say that it contradicts the facts. So I don't agree with that. Okay, Matthew 23 20, and verse 24. This is Jesus rebuking the Pharisees. And he says, uh, Blind guides who strain out a gnat and swallow a camel. I'd like to know someone who has a big enough throat to swallow a camel. Okay. Uh, but Jesus is obviously using hyperbole here to, to promote the truth that they're, they're minimizing the big things and exalting the little things. They'll, they'll strain out, like they're making a bake and they're making a, a, a cake and baking a cake and they're trying to get all the ingredients and then they're outside. They don't have air conditioning and windows and screens and all the bugs are in there and they're doing the best to make sure all the bugs get strained out. But let a camel get in there instead. That wouldn't make any sense, would it? Okay, so that's obviously a hyperbole being used here. Matthew 25. Uh, Matthew 5, I'm sorry. Matthew 5. Starting in verse 27. It says, You have heard that it is said to those of old, You should not commit adultery. But I say to you that whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and cast it from you. For it's more profitable for you that your that one of your members perish than your whole body be cast into hell. If your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and cast it from you. For it's more profitable for you that one of your members perish than your whole body be cast into hell. Obviously another example of hyperbole. Because if you are lusting after a woman or a man with your eyes, and you pluck out one eye, don't you still have another good eye to lust with? So that's not going to solve the problem, is it? And that's the whole point Jesus is making here. Don't go to hell. If you're not solving the problem by plucking out one eye, then you're still going to hell. Uh, but he's just simply using extreme language to, so you understand you can take extreme measures to get the sin out of your life. Even if you pluck out both eyes and have no eyes left, don't you still have your memory? Still in there. Still in there. You know, if, if you, if you're using your hand to drink, drink beer and you're guzzling it down, you cut it off. Well, you learn to use your left hand then, right? And you cut that off, maybe you'll just, uh, put the bottom table and go like this and go like this. You don't have it in your mouth. You guzzle it down. Put it down when you're done. I mean, you find ways to do things. There's people who will paint pictures with their feet or with a paintbrush in their mouth. You know, so it's not going to solve the problem. It's obviously hyperbole being used here. Go to Luke 14, 26. And this is going to coincide with uh, Romans 9. Talking about Jacob I loved and Esau I hated. And uh, Luke 24, uh, Luke 14, I'm sorry. In verse 25, it says, Now great multitudes went with him, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, and his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. 
But doesn't First John three fifteen say that if you hate someone, you're a murderer at heart? Yeah, how can you honor them and hate them at the same time? Love your wife as Christ loved the church and laid his, laid his life down for her. But love your neighbor as yourself. How can you love them and hate them at the same time? Come on, Jesus, this is a contradiction here. So he's using this language to show you a comparison between two things. When it comes to your love for your father, mother, wife, children, brothers and sisters, even your own life, your love for that should be like comparing love, uh, or your love for God should be so much higher than your love for those things. It should be like comparing love to hate. And that's, that's what we see in Malachi 1. We looked at Jacob and Esau, or Israel and Edom. God was comparing the two, pe- two cases. Look how much good I've done to you, Israel. Look how much bad I've done to Edom. And so when you compare, and this, this is a very uh, striking thing to think about. I want you really to think about this. I know we're talking about hyperbole here. But I want you to think about this. If I were, to, if you were to compare your love for your wife or husband, your love for your mother or father, your love for your children, your love for your brothers and sisters in Christ, if you were to compare that to your love for Jesus, would it be like comparing love to hate? Think about that. Really let it sink in. Because Jesus says, if that isn't you, you can't be his disciple. That's Jesus' words, not my words. So really let that sink in. Now, this is an example of hyperbole here, but that's a really uh, striking thing to think about. To really search our hearts on that. Okay, so this hyperbole is also a metaphor in the scriptures. Let's go to John 10. There's a metaphor. So when someone comes up to you on the streets and you're evangelizing, or maybe it's your friend member or friend, and you know you tell them some scripture and say, well, not everything's, you know, you don't believe everything's literal in the Bible, do you? You can tell them, no, I don't believe everything's literal. <laughs> so, I'll stop for a second. But John chapter 10. Let our brothers and sisters get settled down here. Let's give we had a little pause there. You can continue to meditate upon Luke fourteen twenty six. Give you a little more time for self-examination there. I a question concerning that. Sure. Um, like you said, comparing uh, our love for God uh, should be uh, as contrasted as love and hate. Um, you know, if someone who's gone into sin, whether they be our brother or sister in Christ, or uh, someone who has never been born again, <clears throat> our primary motivation for telling them the truth should be our love for God. Right. And often, people construe that as hatred towards them. Mm-hmm. And that kind of really brings this passage to, to mind to me, right. when people say, you're preaching hate, you hate me, you're preaching hate. Right. It's, well, I just love God more than I love you. Right. You know? right. And, then I love, and I also love them, but they don't see the love that I have for them. Right. They just see the contrast, how much I love God and how much I... How much you're willing to do for God. Do for God and yeah. value His Word sure. with no regard with what they want. Right. Yeah. Right, or what even they think. Right. Right. Amen. Right. Uh, I'm the one I read it. 
No, I don't think it's talking about that. If you look at the uh, scripture right before it and right after it, yeah, give us. Is it? It's uh, Matthew twenty-three, uh, starting in verse uh, twenty-three. Um, it says, "Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you pay tithe of mint and anise and cumin, and have neglected the weightier matters of the law." So that's the context there. Um, justice and mercy and faith. These you ought to have done without leaving the others undone. So he, and, and he gets to, you know, straining out the gnats and swallowing the camel. He's not saying you shouldn't strain out gnats. Maybe you should strain out gnats, but you, sh- you should also shouldn't swallow a camel at the same time. So that's the point here is that there are things that are heavier and more clear in the scriptures. And you're so detailed oriented in these other things. You need to be the bigger things and justice and mercy and, and love. That's, those are the things you should be big on. Uh, these little things that you want to pay attention to, you shouldn't ignore those, but you should do the weightier and put more weight upon those things. You know? Well, so that, modern, you see people who are like, oh, I tithe, I do this, I do that, I do this, right. I do that. I'm out here partying. Right. Know, I'll be in church someday. Right. That's exactly what it's like. I think uh, a lot of times people will, you know, in a sense, strain out of that in a sense that they take something that they can reason out to be sin for them individually, right. but it's not a universal sin for everyone. Who hasn't come to the same conclusion they have on a specific topic? Right. Like say uh, coffee. Right. The Mormons they say that it's a sin to drink coffee. For everybody. Yeah, for everybody. Mm-hmm. And they go through this reasoning, you know, coffee's a drug, the caffeine that's in it, how it affects your body, <coughs> right. and all these other things that they use to explain why they believe that coffee is a sin for everybody. Right. And they're doing that so that they use that as this is why I'm holy because I don't drink coffee. Right. But then they turn around and they tell you lies right to your face. Right. And you won't even know they're telling you a lie until you do some research and find out. And you confront them on it. And it's like, well, you were really lying to me there, weren't you? Right. Like, yes, I was. Right. And then they say, well, you should repent. It's like, well, I don't have to. So now they're swallowing a camel. Right. Because they don't drink coffee. And right. these little tiny gnats, these little things that they look to for their holiness. Right. And even the uh, the 12 tribes people of the black Israelites or whatever mm-hmm. they're called. I asked a woman, uh, are you holy? And she's like, yes. And well, how are you holy? And she points to the bottom of her dress. There's little blue tassels on the bottom of her dress. She's like, I got these blue tassels on my dress. And you don't. I'm holy and you're not. Right. And that has nothing to do with holiness. Actually, it's a total uh, misinterpretation of Scripture. That was right. for the priests, not for all Jews. And it's supposed to be the corners of your garment. It's not the edge of your garment. And right. uh, it doesn't even have anything to do with your holiness. It's just supposed to be something to remind you of holiness. So, right. uh, they use these little gnats to point to the, to call themselves holy. Right. And they turn around and they lie and they do all these other things. Right. It's following the camel. Right. So that's another another way I look at it. But, you know, obviously, if there's small things that are sins for everybody, we definitely should pay attention to those things. Yeah. Sure. Yeah, there's definitely things as you walk in, in life that the Lord will reveal to you. And, um, you know, maybe if someone has idolatrous heart towards uh, Starbucks, maybe the Lord would tell them to stop drinking coffee. And then it would be a sin for them. But if they're obeying that, but they're not obeying, thou shalt not lie, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not commit adultery, thou shalt not uh, fornicate, thou shalt not get drunk. If they're not obeying those things, what's the point of obeying the other one? You know? I so. actually have a really relevant thing to the love and hate. Uh, he brought it up about people not feeling like they hate us or that we hate them. And I talked to my sister and she wrote me a yesterday wrote me an email basically saying I, she felt like in the past when you talk about scripture I would bring things up to her she felt like I was attacking her and I was like first thing my mind went to was 
the wisdom of God, the word of God is a, is a sword. Right. And I'm like, yeah, it's probably because you know, I'm attacking you. And I'm like, well, I'm not sorry for that. Right. I'm not going to apologize for telling the truth. Right. Uh, but if she thought she's, she's bitter about it. But that's her choice. She just changed her mind. Amen. Amen. Anybody else while we're waiting here? Josh? That means if you are doing that, you're a tear. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They usually point out the worldly Christianity version when they'll say, you know, we all sin every day. And you say, well, the homosexuals going to heaven? Well, no, the homosexuals can't. Well, why can you continue in sin and they can't? Right. According to you, yeah. Yep. Yeah, yep. you'll find that now, too. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. You point out a sin that most of them will, the conservative Christians will point out and say, no, those can't go to heaven. They can't go to heaven for that. Yeah. But I continue to gossip and lie and yeah, fibs, half truths. Right. Well, we're going through uh, principles of biblical interpretation, hermeneutics, and uh, we're finishing that up today. And um, one of the principles that if the literal sense makes perfect sense, take no other sense unless you make nonsense. But then we also are talking about how there are times when the Bible isn't completely literal, and that there are parables in the Bible, and went through some parables, there's uh, hyperbole in the Bible, like when Jesus says to pluck out the eye and cut off your hand, cut off your foot, he's obviously exaggerating there to prove a point, um, but then there's also Luke fourteen twenty six, and earlier we went through Romans 9, we saw how this applies to that, but Luke fourteen twenty six, 26, uh, we'll start in verse 25, this is Obviously, Jesus using hyperbole, too. Here it says, uh, Now great multitudes went with him, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, in his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. And so we talked about how Jesus isn't literally saying that you need to hate your father, your mother, your wife and children, your brothers and sisters in your own life, but he's... Uh, simply using hyperbole to prove a point here, that when you compare uh, your love for these people or for your own life, comparing it to your love for God, it should be like comparing love to hate. Because the Bible says, love your neighbor as yourself. The Bible says, you hate your brother or murder your heart. Um, and if you love your neighbor as yourself, you have to love yourself too. Otherwise, you can't love your neighbor as yourself. And so we talked about this, and so I, I asked the, uh, the brothers and sisters, I said, examine your own heart, your own life, if we were to compare your love for your husband or your wife, your love for your your children, your life for your your your, your love for your brothers and sisters, um, your love for your own life, would it be like comparing love to hate when you compare it to your love for God? And so I know we've gone through, we've talked about Luke fourteen twenty six, I think a couple of times in here, but it's really good to really think about that. I mean, think about how much you love your husband or wife. Think about how much you love your children. 
Think about how much you love your own life. Uh, think about how much you love your brothers and sisters in Christ. And think about how much you love God. Would, you, would God be comparing love to hate if, that, if he compared to that? And so you really need to search your heart on that and think about that and meditate upon that. Okay, so now we, let's go to metaphors now. There's also metaphors in Scripture. John chapter 10. <clears throat> John chapter 10. Starting in verse 7. It says, Then Jesus said to them again, Most assuredly I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. Now is Jesus literally a door on hinges with a doorknob and everything? No, so that's how he's going to use a metaphor here. I am the door of the sheep. All who ever came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not hear them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he'll be saved. And we go in and out and find pasture. Are we literally sheep who go in and out and find pasture to eat on? No, I don't think anyone here is. Well, we pretty much eat barley grass and stuff like that. But, <laughs> but uh, none of us go out to the pasture and graze on grass, you know, or eat hay. You know. <laughs> yeah. So uh, it says, uh, I am the good shepherd, and the good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. Did Jesus give his life for people or for sheep? He gave his life for people. Okay? But a hireling, he who is not the shepherd, one who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf catches the sheep and scatters them. Uh, so, obviously, the wolf here would be comparing uh, a wolf with Satan. But is Satan literally a wolf? Is Satan literally a dragon, as the scriptures say he is? Is he literally a serpent or a snake? No, but he has a lot of similar characteristics to them. Okay? Uh, so, when we see these things, we have to understand, when the Bible is meant to be interpreted literally, we have to understand there's hyperbole, there's metaphors, there's parables, other uh, forms of uh, literature, and we need to make sure we're interpreting things properly. Okay, so let's uh, let's go to the next principle now, principle number nine. Let Scripture <coughs> interpret Scripture. Um, so let's go to Ephesians 2. And combined in this principle we're going to talk about is... Uh, it's something that wasn't a principle I gave you of interpretation, but a principle I gave you a prerequisite before you begin to interpret the Bible, is to allow Bible words to be defined by the Bible. Okay? Not imposing our own definition upon it, and some people may think the proper way of doing it is to take a Webster's Dictionary and see what it says, and Webster was a Christian, and probably was a really good dictionary, but... Uh, if we're going to in interpret the Bible properly, we have to let Bible words define themselves. So Ephesians 2, starting in verse 1. <clears throat> and there's two words I want you to focus on here is dead and alive. Okay? And you he made alive, who were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spear who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves, in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as the others. But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. 
Okay, so we have this, this, this word dead here a couple times and live here a couple times. And some people with a certain theological persuasion will come to this and say, well, dead equals, that is defined as having no free will. Okay? Because dead people, literally physically dead people, they can't believe, they can't trust, they can't do anything. Okay? And, uh, it says here that, that God made you alive. And so, uh, obviously a dead person can't make themselves alive, and so God's the one who made them alive, so there was no free will involved. And that's how they do it. But let's just, let's look at this passage first to see if, if they got it from the passage itself. Okay? And you he made alive. Okay, so God made us alive. Yep, that's good. Who were dead in trespasses and sins. So, what was the cause of the death, according to Ephesians 2.1? Trespasses and sins. Okay? Now look at verse, uh, verse 2. It says, In which you once walked according to the course of this world. So these people are not walking in these things anymore. Okay? According to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience. Well, if, if it's working in them, and it's not working in you, and they're sons of disobedience, what are you? Sons of obedience. Okay? Among whom we also once conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath just as the other. So they once conducted themselves. So we once walked and once conducted while we are dead. Can physically dead people conduct things? Can physically dead people walk? Okay, so we have to understand that it's not, obviously not talking about physical death here. Because when you became a Christian and you forsook your sins and began to conduct yourself a different way, your old ways was go- were gone, your new ways came, uh, you didn't rise from the dead physically, did you? No, you raised from the dead in what way? Spiritually, that's right. So it's obviously talking about spiritual death and spiritual life here. Now, where, what is the source of spiritual life? The Holy Spirit, that's right. So the Holy Spirit comes in you. Do you have the power, even if you have repented of your sins, do you have the power to make the Holy Spirit come and live inside of you? No. You do not. That's something God does. But God has chosen to do that when? When you repent and you trust, you have faith. Yes, that's why, in fact, the same book here, in Ephesians 1, uh, we see in verse uh, 13, it says, Talking about Jesus here, and him you also trusted, talking about the Ephesian church, after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, so you heard the word of truth, the gospel of salvation, you trusted, and whom also having believed, now what's the response to believing? You were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. So God responded to their faith and gave them the Holy Spirit of promise. Now God doesn't have to do that way, but that's the way he's chosen to do it. That's the way he's chosen to set things up. He's chosen as you believe and you trust, you forsake your sins, he gives you the Holy Spirit. Okay? And so that's the, that's becoming, that's the becoming alive there. Now, still they deal with this dead issue here. How they got dead in the first place. Now, some people would say they were born dead. And we went through Psalm 51.5 and Psalm 58.3 a couple weeks ago, talking about some proof text for original sin or sinful nature. And we see the word verse 3, say, we're by nature children of wrath. Just as the other. So what do we do now? Well, this is where this issue of allowing Bible words to define them, let the Bible define Bible words, okay? The word nature here is fusis. And if you were to take a Greek lexicon or a Greek dictionary, there has two different definitions for it. There's one that has to do with the way you're born, okay? 
It's one that has to do with your conduct, the way you've lived yourself, a nature you developed over time. Okay? For example, um, someone may say of a, a good sports player, oh, he's a natural. Now, do they mean by that that he was born specially in a certain way that other people weren't born? Let's just take one figure that we probably all know about, Michael Jordan, okay? People say, man, he's a natural at basketball. Now, he'll tell you that he's not a natural, that he worked hard at it. He will tell you he got cut from his high school basketball team, and that put a fire in his heart and mind. He wanted to prove everybody wrong. That's what he'll tell you. He'll tell you he wasn't picked number one in the NBA draft, and he wanted to show that number one per- people who picked number one that they made a mistake by not picking him. He'll tell you the reason he came back from retirement is because someone told him, well, come on back and play and I'll show you you're no good. That's what he'll tell you. So he's not going to tell you, yeah, I was born this way. I was some special guy born in North, uh, Durham, North Carolina, and I had all these skills given to me by God by birth. Now, he may have had some physical skill sets, like being six foot six, that gave him an advantage of being a basketball player. I mean, if he was five foot six, he probably wouldn't have been as successful as he was. So that may have been an advantage. But as far as his skill level and his skill set in playing basketball, he worked hard at it. You talk to any player out there who plays any sport, they'll tell you the same thing. Vaughn and Reggie, didn't you guys practice every single day? Hours and hours and hours to get better. You didn't walk on the field and you were a football player. You practiced hard. And so there's a different definition of nature besides the definition that people get to, the way you're born. Now, I was born with blue eyes. I may be able to get some colored contacts and change the color of my eyes, but my eyes, my physical eyes, will still remain the same color. Okay? I was born with light color skin. I can go out and get a tan. I can go to tanning booths. Okay? I can even put some of this cream on my stuff that makes me look darker. But I'm still going to have the same type of skin. Okay? Um, I was born with five fingers and five toes. Okay? That's my nature. Well, yeah, there you go. <laughs> yeah, see? Uh, I was born with, I was born with a mind that needs more rest than I've been getting lately. Um, but I was born with, uh, five fingers on each hand and five toes on each foot. And, uh, you know, I, I could, I could chop a finger off or I could get one chopped off in an accident, but that, that's part of my nature. That's the way I was born. I was born with one brain, born with one heart, with two lungs. This is the way God made me. I can't change these things. And God does not hold me accountable for the way I'm born because the way I'm born is the way He made me. And there's nothing wrong with the way, he, the way he made me. And so let's see the word nature here. Let's see in this, just in this five verse here, if it's referring to birth here or referring to something else. <clears throat> and you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom we also once conducted ourselves in the loss of the, our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just the other. So let's just focus on three things here. Once walked. Is that referring to birth there, or referring to the way you are living your life? The way you're living your life. Yeah, something you developed over time. Uh, you once conducted yourself, in verse 3. Is that referring to the way you were born, or referring to the way you lived your life? Way you lived your life, and it says were by nature. Now, if it was, if you were by nature children of wrath, and it's referring to birth, and that's the way you were born. Now, it must be saying now that you got something else happened to you that changed your nature. 
change to where you were born. But we see that the whole point of this passage is that your conduct changed. And uh, we can go to Romans 2 as well. See another example of fuses. Remember, one of the principles of interpretation when it comes to literary context is that you look at the writings of that same author, because Paul wrote Ephesians and Paul wrote Romans. So you see how he uses word nature. Okay? So let's go to Romans chapter 2. And let's look in uh, verse, let's start in verse uh, 12. Okay? Now he's comparing Jews and Gentiles here. In Romans 2.12, he says, For as, as many as have sinned without the law, that's the Gentiles, will also perish without the law. As many as have sinned in the law will be judged by the law of the Jews. For not the hearers of the law are just in the sight of God, but the doers of the law will be justified. For when Gentiles, who do not have the law, by nature do the things in the law, these, although not having the law, are a law to themselves, who show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness, and between themselves their thoughts accusing or else excusing them. So he says here that Gentiles, by nature, these, these are people who don't have the law now, but they have a conscience and the law of God written upon their hearts, as it says there in verse 15. It says in verse 14 that by nature they did the things in the law. So if we're born with a sinful nature, why are the Gentiles who don't even have the law doing the right things by nature? Yeah, they must. These some Gentiles that, that Paul is talking about here. They must have been born uh, sinless. They must have been born holy, and that's why they're obeying. So now God is playing favorites. Some people are born sinners. Some people are not born sinners, according to if we use this definition of nature. That means always referring to birth. Okay. And then we see in verse uh, Romans one and verse twenty six, talking about homosexuals. Now, for this reason, God gave them up to vile passions. For even their woman exchanged the natural use for what is against nature. Talking about lesbianism there. Likewise also the men, leaving the natural use of the women, burned in their lust for one another, men with men committing what is shameful and receiving themselves the penalty of the error which was due. So here we have uh, Romans 1, 26-27 calling homosexuality unnatural. Well, if you're born with a sinful nature, wouldn't homosexuality be natural? Because isn't homosexuality a sin? Yes. And so we must, we just you can use these, and let's go to Galatians. One more example of the Apostle Paul using the word nature here. <clears throat> Galatians chapter 2. <clears throat> let's start in verse 11. This is a situation where Paul is recounting his rebuking of Peter. <clears throat> says, Now when Peter had come to Antioch, I withstood him to his face, because he was to be blamed. For before certain men came from James, he would eat with the Gentiles. When they came, he withdrew and separated himself, fearing those who were of the circumcision. And the rest of the Jews also played the hypocrite with him, so that even Barnabas was carried away with their hypocrisy. When I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter before them all, If you, being a Jew... Live in the manner of Gentiles, and not as the Jews. Why do you compel Gentiles to live as Jews? We who are Jews by nature and not sinners of the Gentiles. Now, wait a minute now. Is Paul saying that Jews are born holy, but Gentiles are born sinners? I thought Paul just said in Romans 2.15 that some Gentiles were by nature doing the things in the law. Now he's calling them sinners. Now, what is he talking about here? 
What's that? Right. He's talking about the way they were raised, right? They were raised by sinners, so they were sinners. The Jewish people were raised under the law, taught the law of Moses. And so by nature, in that sense, they were raised to fear God and to keep his commandments. Whereas the most Gentiles were not taught that because they did not have the law. And so we see the word nature being used in different ways. And I appeal to you that in Ephesians 2, going back there again now, that in Ephesians 2, that he's doing the same thing. He's talking about conduct, the way you once walked. And most people who believe in the sinful nature doctrine, and they believe Ephesians 2 is talking about the way you're born, they'll tell you that even after they become a Christian, they still have a sinful nature. And they'll appeal to Romans 7, 14-25 to say, look, that's it's just a constant struggle with sin because I have a sinful nature in me and I can't overcome it and it's going to be this way until I die. That's what they'll say. And so, but they'll, they'll appeal to Ephesians 2 and say, well, you know, th- this is talking about nature, but it says right here, we're by nature. Now what are they going to do? They were by nature children of wrath. So it means that's past tense. They're no longer by nature children of wrath. Um, so, once again, we have to interpret scripture with scripture, and this is an example of that. Um, when it comes to looking at the writings of, of the same writer who wrote the one thing, looking to his other writings as well, and letting Scripture interpret Scripture. Now, getting back to this dead and alive thing, okay, coming to full circle here, let's go to Ezekiel. In Ezekiel chapter, let's see here, chapter 37. This is one of the passages people will use to promote this idea that the dead being talked about in Ephesians 2 is referring to physical death, and the coming alive is is comparable with coming alive, period, from from the dead. And you'll also appeal to the situation with Lazarus. Now, what happened with Lazarus? He was dead, right? And Jesus said, Lazarus, come forth! Now, did Lazarus have any power to rise himself from the dead? No. No. And when Jesus did it, did he have any choice in the matter but to come forth? Ooh, maybe he did have a choice, huh? He could have stayed in that tomb, right, and just died there eventually. Because Lazarus did die again, right? He didn't just, like, continue living forever. But as far as coming alive, period, from the dead, he had no choice in the matter. So people who believe Ephesians 2 is talking about death in that sense, they'll compare it to Lazarus. But isn't Lazarus talking about physical death? And so, once again, going back to Ephesians 2, it's not talking about physical death. Let's go to Ezekiel 37. It talks about the dry bones. And they'll use this to promote this idea. The hand of the Lord came upon me and brought me out into, brought me out in the spirit of the Lord and set me down in the midst of the valley and it was full of bones. Then he caused me to, caused me to pass by them all around and behold, there were very many in the open valley. And indeed, they were very dry. He said to me, Son of man, can these bones live? So I answered, O Lord God, you know. And he said to me, prophesy to these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord Lord God to these bones, surely I will cause breath to enter into you and you shall live. I will put sinews on you and bring flesh upon you and cover you with skin and put breath in you and you shall live. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. So I prophesied as I was commanded. And as I prophesied, there was a noise and suddenly a rattling. And the bones came together, bone to bone. Indeed, as I looked, the sinews and the flesh came upon them. 
and the skin covered them over, but there was no breath in them. He said to me, prophesy to the breath, prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath, thus says the Lord God, come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and breath came into them, and they lived and stood upon their feet, an exceedingly great army. Then he said to me, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. They indeed say, Our bones are dry, our hope is lost, and we ourselves are cut off. Therefore prophesy and say then, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, O my people, I will open your graves, and cause you to come up from the graves, and bring you into the land of Israel. Then you shall know that I am the Lord, when I have opened your graves, O my people, and brought you up from the graves. I will put my spirit in you, and you shall live, and I will place you in your own land. Then you shall know that I, that I, the Lord, have spoken it and performed it, says the Lord. Okay, so now who do you, just off the top of your head here, just see who, who's kind of paying attention, what do you think this is referring to? Resurrection. That's right. Resurrection from the dead. Dead in Christ rising. And uh, when we, hear, we see here, it says this is the whole house of Israel. But if we interpret Scripture with Scripture, uh, we know that Romans 2, 25 to 29 uh, says they are not all Jews who are of the Jews. Let's just read that real quick here. You don't have to turn to it if you don't want to. I'll read it to you. Romans 2, starting in verse 25, says, For circumcision is indeed profitable if you keep the law. But if you are a breaker of the law, your circumcision has become uncircumcision. Therefore, if an uncircumcised man keeps the righteous requirements of the law, will not his uncircumcision be counted as circumcision? And will not the physically uncircumcised, if he fulfills the law, judge you, who even with your written code and circumcision are a transgressor of the law? For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh, but he is a Jew who is one inwardly. And circumcision is that of the heart, in the spirit, not in the letter, whose praise is not from men, but from God. And then in Romans chapter 11, we see it said here, actually Romans 9, 6 first. Romans 9, 6 says, For it is not that the word of God has taken no effect, for they are not all Israel who are of Israel. Talking about of Jacob. And then Romans 11 uh, we see in verse 17, it says, and if the branches, some of the branches are broken off, talking about the Jewish people, and you, being a wild olive tree, a Gentile, were grafted in among them, and with them became a partaker of the root and fatness of the olive tree. And then in verse 24, for if you were cut off of the olive tree, which is wild by nature, talking about the Gentiles, and were grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these branches, who are natural branches, the Jews, be grafted into their own olive tree? So you see, we're being grafted into the one olive tree that started out with Israel, that has the root of Jesus Christ. Um, so when it mentions Israel in verse 11, it mentions going into the land of Israel in verse 12, which is the promised land uh, that is guaranteed to Christ, and we are co-heirs with him. We see that this is referring to, in my opinion, all this, these first 14 verses of, Rev, of Ezekiel 37 is referring to the resurrection. And you see, he's going to great detail to talk about the bones coming together, the sinews, the skin, the being breathed into them. And uh, we see in verse uh, 11 that they're speaking. Our bones are dry, our hope is lost, and we ourselves are cut off. Now, if they're going to say that this is referring to sinners before they get saved, and God is doing everything to save them. They're doing nothing because God's bringing them to life against their own will because they have no will. They're dead. Why are they crying out from the grave? 
do, do sinners cry it, from their perspective? Do sinners cry out, "Our hope is lost, and we are supposed to cut off"? No. no from their perspective, they're what'd you say? Good brother. They can't even seek God. That's right. That's right. They can't even seek God. They wouldn't say such a thing. They just love their sin. And so Ezekiel thirty-seven and the example of Lazarus fail to give us a proper parallel to what Ephesians two is talking about when it says dead and alive. Not only that, but think about the physically dead. Can the physically dead? Yes, they can't. They don't have any free will. They can't make themselves come to life. They they uh, they can't believe in Jesus and they can't repent. But they also can't do what? They can't sin. If you're physically dead, how are you sinning? And so there's really no comparison. So I want to look at a comparison that I think is a proper comparison to what is it talking about in Ephesians 2. Go to Luke. And we're going to look at um, the parable of the prodigal son. And I believe this gives a proper parallel to what Ephesians 2 is talking about. Luke 15. And in verse 11, I don't see if you, throughout this, if you see the word dead or alive in there at all, okay? A certain man had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the portion of goods that falls to me. So he divided to them his livelihood. Not many days after, the younger son gathered all together, journeyed to a far country, and there wasted his possessions with prodigal living. And the word prodigal means wasteful living, okay? But when he had spent, spent all... There arose a severe famine in that land, and he began to be in want. Then he went and joined himself to a citizen of that country, and he sent him into the into his fields to feed swine. And he would gladly have filled his stomach with the pods that the swine ate, and no one gave him anything. When he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have bread enough to, and, and to spare, and I perish with hunger? I will arise and go to my father and will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. For I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his, to his father. When he was still a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion and ran and fell on his, his, fell on his neck and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. And I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring out the best robe. And put it on him, and put a ring on his hand, and sandals on his feet, and bring the fatted calf here and kill it, and let us eat and be merry. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found, and they began to be merry. Now his older son was in the field, and he came and drew near to the house, and he heard music and dancing. So he called one of his one of the servants and asked what what these things meant. He said to him, Your brother has come, and because he he has received him safe and sound. Your father had killed and uh, the fatted calf, but he was angry and would not go in. Therefore his father came out and pleaded with him. So he answered and said to him, Lo, these many years I have been serving you, I have never transgressed your commandment at any time, and yet you never gave me a young goat that I might be, make merry with my friends. So as soon as this son of yours comes or came, who has devoured your livelihood with harlots, you killed the fatted calf for him. He said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that I have is yours. It was right that we should be merry and be glad. Make merry and be glad. For your brother was dead and is alive again, and was lost and is found. Now what you see here is a son who takes the inheritance given to him by his father and goes and wastes it on sin. Goes and wastes it on sin. And while he's wasting it on sin, 
Is his relationship with his father broken? Yes, there's a, there's a break in the relationship there. In fact, he says in verse 24, he was dead. Was he dead physically? But he was dead to him because there was no relate, it was bro- a broken relationship. And then we see in verse 32, him saying the same thing, he was dead and is alive again. Well, that brings some more into the picture. I'm not going to go into that really, but he was dead and now he's alive. So he came back. What did he do before he came back? He repented. That's right. He gave up his sin. He left the muck and mire of the pigs and said, I, I humble myself. I'm not worthy to be your son. Just make me a servant. So there's humility involved. There's repentance involved. There's uh, realizing what he was involved. And that's exactly what you see in Ephesians 2. You were dead in your trespass and sin. But what does that mean? It means that your relationship with God is dead. Sinners have no relationship with God as far as intimacy is concerned. They have a relationship of a judge and a guilty criminal, but not a relationship like we have with God. And so we see here, I think this is a better example to you because it talks about dead and being alive, being alive again. And we see all the things involved here, how he came back and how God responded to that. Now, did God have to respond and take him back? Did the father have to take him back? He didn't have to take him back. So we have, once again, the father making us alive, which is really synonymous with being forgiven of your sins and being given the Holy Spirit. Okay, so this is how you let Scripture interpret Scripture. You allow Scripture to define the words it uses. And this is why sometimes it's good to to, uh, uh, to do word studies, to see how different words are used before you give a definition to them. Okay? And then the last principle we have here is uh, interpret unclear verses in light of clear verses. So let's go to Exodus chapter 20 here. Chapter 20 and verse 5. This is after God is giving the second, uh, the second commandment here. We'll start in verse 4 of Exodus 20. You should not make for yourself a carved image, any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water underneath the earth. You shall not bow down to them nor serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children, to the third and fourth generations, to those who hate me, but showing mercy to thousands, to those who keep me and love my commandments, or who love me and keep my commandments. Um, so people will take verse 5, and they'll say, well, look, this proves original sin. It proves the doctrine of the sinful nature, because look, God is punishing children for what their parents did. Well, let's let's just say they're they're right about that. What does it say? To what generation? The third and fourth generations. How many generations removed from Adam and Eve are you? A lot more than three or four, right? Right, a lot more than three or four. So we should no longer be guilty of their sin, right? And so that 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 would kind of dismiss it. And plus, they they dismiss verse six by showing mercy to thousands to those who love me and keep my commandments. Now, now Abraham didn't he love God and keep his commandments? Yeah, so so everyone from Abraham should be saved according to because what Abraham did. They should all be saved. You know, I, I'm, I love God. I keep His commandments. That means my children are automatically saved for a thousand generations. Yeah. Is that what it's saying here? Yeah. Let's go to Ezekiel 18. It's let a, I think because he doesn't really give an explanation there in Exodus 20, so I think that kind of clarify uh, qualifies 
as one of these unclear verses, we need to let a clear verse interpret. So Ezekiel 18, and you can really read the whole thing. I would really encourage you to read the whole thing, but I'm, for time's sake, I'm not going to read the whole thing. I'm just going to read two verses, verses 19 and 20, Ezekiel 18. Yet you say, why should the Son not bear the guilt of the Father? So that's the, the question the Jews are asking God. Why shouldn't the Son bear the guilt of the Father? Isn't that, the, isn't that the, what's, what's right to do? Because a son has done what is lawful and right, and has kept all my statutes, observed them all, he shall surely live. The soul whose sins shall die. The son shall not bear the guilt of the father, nor the father bear the guilt of the son. The righteousness of the righteous shall be upon himself, and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon himself. Okay, so we have these two passages here. Exodus 20, and we have Ezekiel 18. What do we do with them? Well, I, what I believe Exodus 20 is referring to is temporal, natural consequences for a parent's sin. Now, if I were a, a drunkard and a wife beater, it would affect my children in drastic ways. Uh, my parents got divorced when I was eight years old. It affected me in drastic ways. It's, I still think it affects my sister, who's a year older than me to this day. They're talking about uh, almost 30 years later. It's still affecting her. So the way, and this is a good good way to examine yourself, the way you act, the, what, what you say, the way you live, is going to impact your children. It'll impact them more than what you say. You need to realize that. And so there are natural consequences uh, for saying that. I, I, once, I wish I would have had this on me, but um, they once did a genealogical record of this one wicked man who lived during Jonathan Edwards' time. And all the wickedness that came from all the criminals, all the prostitutes, all those who had been in jail, all those who died at a young age, it was just enormous. It was astonishing. Murderers. And then he did a, a record from Jonathan Edwards. And how many good things came from him. Uh, presence of Bible colleges, pastors, Christians, all these things that came from him. And it goes to show you, you need to leave a legacy. Now, in my family, I kind of broke that curse, so to speak, that we read about in Exodus 20, because there really were no Christians in my family. I couldn't find any, going back probably five or six generations. I can't find any. So if I could have continued in my father's footsteps, I could have gotten divorced three times, I could be a drunkard, I could be a fornicator, I could be all these things, but the Lord Jesus Christ saved me. I submitted myself to him, and now I hope to start a new legacy now. So people can look at my gener my uh, genealogy and they'll see something completely different than they saw before me. And so that's what I think generational curses is talking about, because that's the only way I think we can interpret it properly in light of Ezekiel 18. So this is an example of interpreting unclear verses in light of clear verses. You can't get any clearer than Ezekiel 18 when it comes to these things. But Exodus 25 and 6, and there's also uh, Exodus 34-7 mentions it as well, um, when people try to interpret the way they do, it doesn't make sense in that passage or with the rest of the Bible put together. Okay? All right, so we've gone through these, these principles of interpretation today, these numbers 6 through 10. We've talked about um, how to look at Old Testament verses when they're quoted and interpret them properly in light of their original context. We've looked at the literal sense making perfect sense, take no other sense lest you make nonsense. Look at the fact that there's also parables, there's hyperbole, there's metaphors, and that everything's literal. Uh, we looked at the fact that we need to let Scripture interpret Scripture. There is no contradiction in God's Word. And interpreting unclear verses in light of clear verses. And the last thing I want to just touch on real quick here is just talk about uh, these different tools you can use when it comes to studying the Bible. Okay? 
This right here is called a uh, Greek-English interlinear Bible. Okay, this is just the New Testament. Okay, now you can get the, the Old Testament in Greek as well, or you can get a Hebrew interlinear Bible. And what this does, you can look at it afterwards, I'm sure, but it has the Bible verses here, like this is Acts 17, 15, and it'll have the Greek and the English right above or below each other. And so it's a literal word-for-word translation of the Greek into English. And this is profitable because if you don't know the Greek language very well, it's going to be hard for you to use a Greek lexicon, which is a, a Greek dictionary. And so you come over here, and let's say you're... Um, Let's just go to, you know, scripture everyone knows about, John 3.16. Let's go there for a second here. Everybody knows that scripture, right? And let's look at it in the Greek here <clears throat> and see what the literal translation is. Okay, so John 3.16. The literal translation he has here of John 3.16 is, Thus for loved God the world, that Son His, only begotten, He gave that everyone believing in him should not perish, but should have life eternal. So that's the literal translation from the Greek to the English. And I want, to, I want you to notice here, it doesn't say believe as of a one-time occurrence, but believing. It's a current thing, okay? But let's say we were to take um, the word for believing here, pisteo, and let's look it up in the Greek dictionary. So we have a great Greek dictionary here. Now this one's kind of expensive. It probably costs over $100 you buy it online. It's called the BDAG Dictionary, which stands for the guys who actually edit it. It's uh, Bauer, Danker, Arndt, and Gingrich, BDAG, okay? So, but in order to use this, just like if you take an English dictionary, you have to know the alphabet, right? Otherwise, you can't look things up in it. If you want to look up uh, Bumblebee, you have to know that B comes after A and before C, and then you have to know that U comes, where it comes in the alphabet, and then to be able to look it up and find it. Uh, so in this, you have to know the, the Greek dictionaries. You have to know the Greek uh, uh, alphabet. So pisteo, I know P is is uh, is pi here. It's going to come here towards the back here. There's omicron. It's coming after omicron in the Greek alphabet. So now I got now I'm at the P alpha. I'm going to P iota. So let's go to P i here. It's going down. So just just like you would any a dictionary, you're trying to find the word by knowing the alphabet. And let's see what this has to say about pisteo. Okay, P lambda. Okay, pistos, or pistos, let's see here. Pisteo, uh, let's see. Back one page. Pistis. Okay, pisteo, right here. It says, to consider something to be true and therefore worthy of one's trust, belief. So it gives a good, a good definition here, and there's other definitions you can look at too, and it'll also give verses where this word is found, where this Greek word is found in your English Bible. And so it's good to have this. Sometimes you can go a little deeper with a with a word. Uh, we could look up fusis in here. Yeah. That, that'd be a good one to look up, and I'll let you look it up later on when you when you study the Greek alphabet for yourself. <laughs> a little practice there, a little exercise. And so so you have the, uh, the Greek-English uh, Bible interlinear here, which is just the New Testament. Uh, this isn't mine. This is actually Brother Vaughn Lawrence, and so is the dictionary. I actually have mine. Mine's all electronic, so I don't. I don't think I don't actually have hard copy of of this or that. It's all on my computer. Um, and then we have this is something I use a lot. Okay, it's a tool I probably use more more than anything else besides the Greek and the Greek dictionary. It's called the. This is the New Treasury of Scripture Knowledge. Okay. Uh, now, if you don't have a reference Bible, I would encourage you to get one of these. 
it's it's a it's a big reference book. And so if you go through different verses in the Bible, like for example, let's go to Romans nine in here, and let's see uh, if it gives re- the right references here for different scriptures are looked up. It'll give references for different things that are used in the same word. So Romans nine twelve here, okay, it says the elder. So we have Romans nine twelve here, and it'll actually you see the, in the bold letters they'll have a certain phrase or a certain word found in that verse, and it'll give you different verses throughout the Bible that are using the same word or the same phrase. Or maybe if it's quoting a Bible verse, it'll tell you. So in Genesis, Romans 9, 12, it says Genesis 25, 22, and 25, 23. And it gives other scripture references as well. Um, and then for uh, Jacob I loved, Esau I hated, oh, what do you know? Under the word hated, it has Luke fourteen twenty six, right there. You know, so if if people who are studying Romans nine would just have this, it would have pointed them to Luke fourteen twenty six, and they would have been able to say, "Well, Jesus didn't mean literally that he wants us to hate our mother or father, our sister or brother, our wife and our children." But so we must maybe he doesn't mean literally here that he hated Esau and he loved Jacob in that sense. And so this is a, this is real profitable to help you if you're doing a topical study on a certain topic in the Bible. You get one of these, if you know where that topic appears in certain scriptures, it'll show you other scriptures where the same topic appears. This is called the New Treasury of Scripture Knowledge. Now, there's the original one, too. But this is the new one. It's edited by Jerome Smith. He just added to it and revised and expanded it. And this one's called uh, Nelson's Cross-Reference Guide to the Bible. It's uh, basically the same thing as this. In fact, the same guy, Jerome Smith. Okay, Just printed uh, a different way. I've called the Treasury of Scripture Knowledge, and this is this one actually is mine, but I use the Treasury of Scripture Knowledge more than this. Because I have it on my computer, okay. And then we have something called a concordance. And if if you were to get uh, two things to study your Bible, the two things I would recommend you get is a concordance and a, a cross reference, okay. Uh, now, if you want to go a little deeper, you can learn some Greek, and you can you can get a Greek dictionary and a Greek Bible. And that kind of stuff. But this is called a concordance. Now this is, don't, don't crucify me. This is an NIV concordance, okay? Um, this is, I bought this a long time ago. I haven't used it. I, it was in the shelf in the living room. I haven't used it in so long. Uh, I, I really don't use concordance anymore myself. Um, I, I've read through the Bible enough to usually know where things are, but if I don't, I use Google. Just type it in on Google and it finds it for me. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know? If I know part of the verse, I type in Google, oh, there it is. I know where it is. So. Uh, but this concordance, what a concordance is, it takes every word found in the Bible and tells you where it is in here. Okay, so it tells you every verse it's found in. Like if I were to, the word killed, you see the word killed here, and then you see every account in the NIV Bible now of the word killed throughout the Bible. And so even if you know this one, you know, you can't remember where that one verse is, but you know one of the words in the verse you can go to that word in the concordance and find the verses contained in. Okay? So if you get any tool, any two tools that I recommend, you get a, get a concordance and get a cross-reference system. Um, some people have reference Bibles. Okay? I have reference Bible, but my reference Bible is nowhere near as exhaustive as the new treasury of scripture knowledge or this cross-reference right here. Now, if you wanted to learn Greek, and most of you probably won't care about this, but uh, if you wanted to learn Greek, the book I would recommend is, is called Basics of Biblical Greek. It's done by William Mounts. Okay? And uh, this is the workbook that comes with it, or you, you buy it separately, but it's the one you want to get for it. And he also has courses you can purchase online. 
And I just recently became more zealous to, to brush up my Greek because uh, uh, Brother Jesse's starting to dive into Greek, and he was uh, asking me a bunch of questions. And, and so we kind of challenged each other that we would uh, finish our books in this amount of time, our workbooks and our, our textbooks, to you know, get it down to, to know it uh, very, very well. And so I'm, I'm recently getting back into that, and right now I think I'm on Chapter 3 of my textbook. But uh, I've, I've committed to do three chapters a week. And so he's going to hold me accountable to that, and he's doing a chapter a day because his book is smaller and and has less pages per chapter than mine is. So if you ever wanted to get a little further with that, you can do that. And um, So these are some things that might help you, interpreting the Bible properly. They've been very helpful to me. But as I said before, if you never learn Greek, if you never use a Greek dictionary, your your, your Bible is, is reliable. If you have a King James and New King James, I think it's a reliable translation and uh, it can be trusted. And, uh, you know, if things do come up, if you can talk to someone who does know Greek, who can help you through it. So, okay. First one. One thing I want to clarify is, uh, I don't know if I tell everybody else, concordance isn't really authoritative on definitions, is it? No, concordance is not a dictionary. Okay? Sometimes a concordance will have uh, definitions in it, but that's not what it's made to be. Okay? It's made to be a concordance. That's why it's called that. If you want... If you want a good Greek dictionary, I would encourage you to get the BDAG, or you can get Thayer's, which is a good one. Um, and the other one, I can't remember the guy who wrote it, but it's... Uh, I'll have to get, I'm having a brain fart right now. I'll have to get back to you later. My brain's not working very well today. But uh, I'll get back to you later. But th- those are the two that I would recommend off the top of my head. is Thayer's or the BDAG one. Okay. And if you simply learn uh, the Greek alphabet, which is really easy to learn... Uh, if you learn the Greek alphabet, then you should be able to use it just fine. Yeah. Yes. I'm sorry, go ahead, brother. You, so, Thayer's, you, you would endorse Thayer's then? Yeah, I think it's a pretty good one. Yeah, my, my the one I recommend the most highly is BDAG. Right, BDAG. Yeah, the only one that doesn't come free on the internet. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Thayer's, I do notice, comes up. No, I wouldn't use that one. I wouldn't use that. And, of course, the best concordance out there is Strong's Concordance, okay, which usually it does the King James Version, okay? And even if, you don't, even if you're reading the New King James, the Strong's Concordance will be, still be profitable for you because it's usually the same words. Uh, now, there, are, there is a New King James. I looked it up this morning. There is a New King James Concordance, but uh, it's very difficult to find, and it can be expensive. So I don't know what the deal is with New King James. They're like... Someone at the uh, at Kentucky Derby yesterday was presenting to me a conspiracy theory that the Catholics are trying to get rid of New King James Bible because it's very really hard to find them. I don't know if that's true or not, but it's, it's, it seems very difficult to find. Uh, ref, you know, I know you guys had problems finding a certain Bible. My Bible, uh, this Bible, I bought it I think four or five years ago, and it was falling apart recently. And so I was thinking about getting another one, the same exact one, because I really liked it a lot, but you couldn't find it anywhere. So I just got mine rebound. You know, so but anyway. Uh, my favorite concordance is, is Google, so uh, I'll just I'll just type it in there and I find it. So, uh, but hopefully, hopefully you'll become a walking concordance someday. You know, as you as you progress in the faith, that you won't have to use a concordance; that you'll know where scriptures are. Joshua. The sixth principle. Let's see here. Get my notes here. Make sure I give you the right one. Sixth principle 
is when you see Old Testament verses quoted in the New Testament, you go back to the Old Testament and see what they're saying in context. You don't strip them from their context. I actually learned from Tim, I don't know if you can verify this, a while back. He said that's how Pharisees taught. They would take little clips of things here and there and say, well, you got to look it up. They know what they're talking about. Because Jews knew the scriptures so well, Pharisees would just grab little clips here and there and say, oh, look at this, look at that, look at this, look at that. Hmm. I don't know if that's true. Yeah, I don't... I don't remember seeing that in the Bible. I mean, it would have to be something he learned from uh, extra-biblical sources because not, I don't remember that in the Bible. Um, I mean, most times I do quote scriptures that are just not interpreting it properly. Yeah. Yes, Tracy? I was going to say, if uh, anybody wants to see uh, interlinear with Hebrew in it, I have one. Mm-hmm. And uh, the answer, remember, when you're looking at the Hebrew uh, interlinear, is you would have to consider reading it backwards. He reads from right to left. And he and he really, if you were to decide to whether to learn Hebrew or Greek, I mean Lord let the Lord lead you, but uh Greek is easier in my opinion because the, the, the actual characters look a lot like English characters. Whereas Hebrew is just completely different. And like you said, the right to left issue too. And with and with the Greek, you actually have a Greek Old Testament, so you could look at the Old Testament in Greek and New Testament in Greek. So if you're going to pick one, my my opinion, you should pick Greek. And that, I like it a lot too. Josh, oh, the basics of biblical Greek. This textbook right here is William Mounts, M O U N C E, William Mounts. Yeah. Yes, Bo John. Yeah, yeah. I mean, in this situation, there's question as to whether it's referring to him coming to an age of understanding and dying for the first time, or it's he was alive, obeying his father, and then walked away and came back. Both are true. Both are true. But the question is, which one is this talking about? It doesn't really matter from what Jesus is trying to teach there, I don't think. But that word, again, is in there for a reason. And, you know, Romans 7, Paul talks about the same thing. No. Yeah, I've actually read and I was reading a commentary. People were trying to remove that word again. They would try to get it out of there. And, they're, and they're, when they were interpreted, they, they just do dot, 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 and alive. Try to get rid of it again. Try to cover it up. Yeah, well, I always think of Ezekiel 37. Mm-hmm. And then the way it connects with that. Yeah. How, as you said, the people of a certain persuasion might do. Right. Say, you're still spiritually stillborn. Right. Right. They were connected at one point in time. Yeah. Right. 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 Amen. Okay, anybody else? Any questions?
heard just a word. Uh, I've heard somebody, I don't know where I heard this source, they said that hate in that context means love less. Meaning God gave grace to one people who didn't deserve, like the Israel who were constantly given forgiveness, built up their nation. And the other, even when they were being wicked, mm-hmm. the other nation, Edom, who was also being wicked the whole time, and he was just giving them their, their justice. Mm-hmm. He just gave them justice. He said, look, you don't see what's going on, then I'm just giving them justice every time you're getting to go on. Well, even these days, it's not being used properly. I mean, right. hate speech, you tell someone they're going to hell for their sins. That's love speech, not hate speech. Right. Anybody else? 